chapter, chapter 1, starting at verse 16. Peter says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. What event is Peter describing? The Mount of Transfiguration. It's a, he, that, that phrase that came from heaven, this is my son, hear ye him, or I'm well pleased in him. It's a good Another good response, that did come when he was baptized of John the Baptist. But Peter says in verse 16, We have not followed the uh, fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When they went to the Mount of Transfiguration, what took place up there? Jesus was shown to them in his glory before he came to this earth. The Bible says he shone so bright, the disciples fell on their face in total fear. It also tells us that only Peter, James, and John went with them. That's why Peter says that when we have made known unto you the thing that we saw, not everybody was up there. Peter and those other disciples, they came down, they told the other disciples and other people throughout history about that event. In verse 17, when it says, we received, He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory. Out of that shining brightness, the Bible says, and we're not taking the time to read it, but it's in Matthew 17. Out of that glory, out of that brightness, this voice came... And verse 18 says that the voice came from where? Out of heaven itself. It's another reason they fell flat on their face in awe. They heard an audible voice from heaven saying, This is my son. Now Peter is describing this event. He's describing having been privy to something that only a couple other human beings saw. Remember in that episode, it records that Moses and Elijah was seen there talking with Jesus. Wow. Two guys that had been gone for a long time. There's something interesting about those two guys. When Moses died, what's the Bible say about his death? That nobody knew where he was buried. God called him up to Mount Nebo before they were going to cross into the Jordan. The Bible says God buried him. What about Elijah? He wasn't even buried. The Bible says this chariot of fire came down, scooped him up, and took him to heaven. Those two men, both don't have graves that we can visit, were seen with Jesus talking to him. And according to Peter here, what were they talking about? He says in verse 16, Made known unto you the power 
and the coming of our Lord. Those guys were there to talk to Jesus about his coming back to this earth. That's not what I'm here to talk about. These guys, Peter especially, is here to talk about an event where they heard something that people don't normally hear. They saw something that people almost never see. One thing that jumps to my mind is Paul, Saul, who's on the road to Damascus, and this bright, shining light confronted him, asked him, why are you kicking against the pricks? Why are you persecuting me? And Paul fell to the ground, and in one of the quickest transformations, he says, Lord, he immediately converted. He saw this bright, shining light. That didn't happen to most people. Peter saw it. And Peter is here to describe something. Look at verse 18. This voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Peter heard the audible voice of God talking about his son, Jesus. And why why is Peter bringing this episode up? Verse 19. We have also, that means in addition, on top of it, a more sure word of prophecy. If I had to put a title on this message, it would be, How Sure Can You Be? Peter is telling people, listen boys, we believe because we saw a lot of things. One of them we saw, Peter, James, and John, we were up there in the mountain and he was transfigured before us. He shone like the sun. And then we heard his father's personal voice that came from heaven that told us, this is my boy and you better listen to him. We are, I am well pleased in him. Peter heard a voice from heaven. And the next verse says, We have something that is more certain than that. You catch what he's saying there? Verse 19, we have also a more sure word. Let's just stop here for a second. How many of you have heard the audible voice of God? I feel like I've had a lot of things confirmed to me by the Lord in different ways. I've never heard his audible voice. Not sure if I know anybody that has. It's a rare thing. And we're, not, we're definitely not here to say that that doesn't happen. God can reveal him, Himself to a person in any way that He can, and it has, it has happened. It doesn't happen very often. If you have a question, anybody have a question that they would like answered for their own life tonight? Would you like confirmation of something going on in your life? Lord, I need direction on something, whether I should go this way or that way. If you have that crossroads in your life, how many would like to hear the audible voice of God speak to you? My hand's up. This says we have something better than that, more sure. Don't breeze over that. Peter says we have a more sure word. And what is that word described as? Of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. He is describing being in a perfectly dark place, but a bright light somewhere out there in the future, out there in the distance. 
And you know, if you're in total darkness, what he's describing there, that bright light, it's not only something that you can see, it's the only thing that you can see. You, can you imagine total darkness and you see, you've all had it happen, the, a door cracks and you can see the outline of a door opening. You forget about anything, what's on this wall or that or what's behind you, because you can only see that light coming towards you. Peter is describing written down prophecy like this. It's the only thing that matters. And he is saying, fellas, we heard God's own voice. Wow. That puts him kind of on a shelf almost by himself with a few other people. And he's going out of his way to say, we have something that's better than that. We have written down, look at the next verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture, Scripture is filled with prophecy, it is of no private interpretation, meaning you can't take it and say, it means this to me and it means that to you. There's not one person that just gets to decide. God, the Bible, interprets itself. The next verse For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In other words, how did we get our scripture? How did we get our prophecy? God spoke to these men. He moved upon their hand as they wrote to write down what Isaiah saw, what Ezekiel recorded, what Zechariah wrote, what Micah wrote down. All those prophets... God moved through them. And what Peter is saying is that that stuff is more sure. That's his word. More sure than hearing God's audible voice. That's hard for us to get our mind wrapped around. Tell you what I think of when I hear that. The parable, the story that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus laid at the gate of the rich man begging, never received much, doesn't sound like. They both died. The rich man went to hell and Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. And Jesus says that the rich man asked that Lazarus be allowed to dip his finger in water and touch his tongue. He was in the tormenting fire. And Jesus says there's a great gulf fixed between us. We we can't get from you to us, from you to us and vice versa. And what did that man say he wanted next? He said, send Lazarus back to tell my brothers. I've got five brothers that are still back there. Tell them not to end up here. What did Jesus say? He said, they have Moses and the prophets to listen to. And what did the rich man reply? He said, no, Lord, if one came back from the dead, they'd listen to him. It's very instructive what your Bible is, when Jesus responded saying, no, no. If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they will not listen, though one came back from the dead. We know that to be true because Jesus did come back from the dead. And what about his enemies? Did they believe? Caiaphas, Pharisees, Sadducees, were they waiting there to say, sir, sorry we doubted you, buddy, but you you were right on. You're back from the dead? That proves you are who you say you are. Not at all. They doubled down on their disbelief. They paid off soldiers to lie 
to say that his disciples came and stole his body away. What's the point? God has given the Bible for us to believe, to believe in something. Peter calls it, it's more sure than even if you heard the audible voice of God. The next time you are out in a deer stand by yourself, or in your garden, or taking a ride, or walking, anytime you're alone, I want you to think about what it would be like to hear the audible voice of God. No doubt that you knew that's where it came from. What it would mean to your faith to think, man, God just spoke to me. Peter says, this is more important. We need to look at that. Why? How can Peter be so sure? How can he say something like that and not think, I would rather hear God's voice up on that mountain again rather than maybe go back and read in Daniel or read in Isaiah or the Psalms somewhere? I've I've read that stuff. I want to hear God's voice again. He's saying there's something more important. How sure can we be that the Bible is what it says it is? That it's infallible? That it's literally God's word? That this thing came from somewhere outside of our universe? How can we be sure? Well, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, somebody says that there's there's over 8,000 predictive verses. 8,000 that are predicting something in the future. And it's talking about 700 different events or subjects. Some of them are describing, predicting the Messiah. Some are predicting maybe his second coming or a war, a battle. The number of dead in a battle. What direction a king would come from in that battle. There are 300 prophecies alone that describe specifically something about the Messiah. Now, I'm going to blame something on the day job here. I'm a little bit of a math guy. We're going to look at something just from the eyes of probability. Don't get scared. You're not back in high school. This can be fun. Out of 300 prophecies that have to all be true, otherwise, whoever we say the Messiah is, he can't be him unless all 300 boxes are checked. We're going to pick about seven or eight easy ones. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, He has to be born in Bethlehem. Now think about this. Right now, I think they say that the population of Bethlehem is about 1,500 people. When we were there five years ago or so, it's pretty small. Micah says it's one of the smallest out of the thousands. I want you to think, if, if this room right now was one big sphere, if it was a globe this big, as big as this room, and we were just to spin that sucker randomly and then just stop it, you know, we, we could stop it anywhere on the globe, but the town would have to be about as big as Hebron or less. Have you ever pulled up on Google Maps the entire United States and then just randomly picked out where Hebron is? It doesn't show up until you first do what? You've you got to hit plus. You've got to zoom in, and the thing gets bigger. Then you've got to hit zoom again, and you've got to get bigger. And once you get to Nebraska, then it starts popping up maybe Grand Island, Kearney, Omaha, Nebraska, because it only puts stuff kind of big enough that fits on there. And you zoom in again, and now you can maybe find Hebron on there. That's what the United States 
We're one of 207 nations in the world. Bethlehem is tiny. The fact that one person, this one person, has to come from there. You know what the odds of all, say, all the 6 billion people that are on the earth today? If we have the 6 billion, divide it by the 1,500 people that are over there. Let's just say that random chance that they're all born there. You know what the chances are of any one human being on earth being born there? It's astronomical by itself. Let's just for fun record it down. If if somebody was a secretary, write it down as one out of 100,000. Trust me, as a math guy, it's much, much, much more than that. Because think how big Moscow, Mexico City, New York City, there's 8 million people in some of those places. There's a lot of Bethlehems inside there. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Let's find something else about something that had to be true. Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Zechariah is right at the end of the Old Testament, second to last book. Malachi is the last in the Old Testament. Zechariah is right before that. So if you're in, the, in Matthew at the New Testament, you only got to go back a few pages. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. So he's telling whoever this person is, to rejoice, get really happy, because, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. What's that describing? Triumphal entry. When Jesus goes into Jerusalem the last time, do you remember him organizing that event? He told his disciples, uh, boys, go over there. And when you come around the corner, there's going to be a donkey tied up that nobody's ever ridden on. I want you to untie that sucker, bring it to me. And if the owner says, what are you doing? What were they supposed to say? Uh, The master's got need of it. And you bring it to me. Jesus organizes this event. He gets on that donkey and he rides into Jerusalem. What's the whole crowd yelling while he's riding in? Hosanna, Hosanna. And that is the Old Testament language for uh, your king's coming. That's what they say when you're supposed to identify he's coming. That's why they were so excited. What did they do with their, their jackets? They took their garments and threw it down in palm branches so he could ride across. They don't do that just for Uncle Fred or Grandpa showing up for Thanksgiving. That is for when the king arrives. And this verse prophesied that. Now, Let's look at this closely. What are the three things in Zechariah 9.9 that are part of this prediction? First off, who is supposed to be happy about this? Jerusalem. This specific place on the globe. This had to happen where? Couldn't happen in Moscow or Berlin or London or Washington, D.C., or even Hebron. Now think of the thousands upon thousands of places it could happen. 
Zechariah says, O daughter of Jerusalem, it had to happen to this one city. And what had to happen? Your king is coming unto thee. Now see, our nation, we don't even have kings here. This king had to go to one specific place, Jerusalem. He had to be riding in and presenting himself as a king. And what was his mode of transportation? He had to be riding on a donkey. Now I want you to think about those three things. Somebody has to be on a donkey. He has to be telling the whole crowd he's their king. And it has to happen in one geographical place on the planet, Jerusalem. How many times do you think that's happened? I'm with Mel. I don't think it's ever happened, unless maybe a crazy person that got out of a a sane asylum and ran out there and tried to reenact, possibly. Jesus is probably the only one that even tried this. But again, I'm in a generous mood. Let's say it's one in a hundred thousand people that have ever done this. We're just keeping track for a later calculation. Right. Now, Zechariah has got a bunch of these things. Look at chapter chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11. And look at verse 12. Zechariah is filled with this. And we're just going to stay here because this is easy. I'm not even going to make you turn all over the place. Verse 12. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price, 30 pieces of silver. What's that make you think of? Makes me think of Judas. It, it's like a third person, he says, it weighed for my price. The Holy Spirit, riding through Zechariah, is talking about himself or Jesus sitting right next to him. They weighed for my price, 30 pieces of silver. Now that, that's strange. I mean, let's put it this way. It's, it's not... Doesn't happen often that somebody was bought for that price. 30 pieces of silver. But th- there's a lot more to this. Look at chapter, uh, verse 13. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter. In the house of the Lord. Now this is getting strange. But you know what strange is? It nails stuff down. When something is strange, does that mean it happens a lot or a little? It means it almost never happens. That's the definition of strange. If something happens every single day like the sun coming up, do we think that's strange? We don't even question it. It happens every day. This is strange because it's talking about Somebody being bought for 30 pieces of, not brass, not gold, not copper, silver. And then it includes some information that it was given to a potter. And it tells us where this transaction took place. The last five, six words of this verse, where did this take place? In the temple, in the house of the Lord. Has everybody got what we're looking at here? Somebody has to be bought with 30 pieces of silver. The money has to end up in a potter's hand. 
And the whole transaction has to take place in one building on planet Earth. Not your garage. Over there in Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, the temple. Go to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be right back here in Zechariah. But Matthew... Twenty seven Matthew twenty seven. Is that right? Yes. Good call. Matthew chapter twenty seven, verse three. Then Judas which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Now where are chief priests and elders? Their job, their office is in the temple saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. You know, when I read that part, I always think of who had entered Satan the day before? Excuse me. Who had entered Judas the day before? The Bible tells us Satan did. And now what's Judas saying? The Lord even gets his enemies to confess the truth. Judas is there saying, I was wrong. This guy's innocent. Verse 4, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to it. They, they don't want anything to do with him anymore. And he cast down the thirty pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And we got part of our story. Thirty pieces, the price. The actual location is where... In the temple, Judas took this and he threw it at him. It lands and slides across the rock floor in the temple. And now look what happens in verse 6. The chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It's not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it's the price of blood. I always think about that. They, they didn't care that they killed God's son. But they were so worried about the law that they were worried about what? That the money couldn't end up in a certain account. See how you can see the trees and not get the forest? They were so concerned about where this money ended up and didn't realize we had just killed God's son. But, be that as it may, verse 7, they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to buy strangers. And what's that talking about, buy strangers? Back then, somebody happened to be traveling through had an aneurysm, or they slipped and hit their head on a rock and they died, Jewish law, burying was a big deal because that was uncleanness. They had to be done in a certain place. So the authorities, which were those people in the temple, they had to see to it that these people were buried in a certain place. So here's their thinking. They had a good accountant on staff. He said, well, we can't accept the money and put it in our treasury, but we can take it. And let's prepay some expenses. Let's buy that field from that potter who's advertising down there. We buy the potter's field and do what with it? Bury strangers there. So the money comes in and they can't keep it. So they took that money and gave it to the potter to buy his field so that in the future they could deal with some of their future expenses. Look at how accurate the Bible was. 
30 pieces of silver. It happened in the temple, and the money ended up in whose hands? The potter. All of that predicted hundreds of years before Jesus ever even came to the earth. How many times do you think that's happened? What we just described. That's. Should we be kind again and say one in a hundred thousand people? See, people die all the time. How many times were they paid for? The money went into the temple, but then ended up with a potter, and it bought a field. You see how strange the details are to mimic. It's impossible. These details are so out of the ordinary that it sticks out. So one in a hundred thousand again would be lowballing it. Let's go back to, to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13. In verse 7... Zechariah is just filled with these kind of predictions and prophecies. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. God's shepherd. Remember, Jesus called himself the good shepherd. And against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. You can turn to Matthew. We're not, uh, we're not going to go and look there. We're just going to mention it for now. When Jesus is struck, when he is arrested, what did his disciples do? They did exactly what that verse says. They scattered. They were so scared, so shocked that he turned himself over to the Romans. They fled in every direction, the Bible says. Peter ended up fleeing naked in the end. Go back up to verse 6. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded... In the house of my friends. Now, we're talking about the 30 pieces of silver, which leads us to Judas. Judas was his friend. His friend betrayed him and turned him over to the authorities. And this verse describes the wounds in his hands. We now know on this side of the cross clearly what that means. But there is something strange about that. Wounded in the house of my friends? Were the Romans that put the metal stakes into his hands. Were the Romans his friends? See, there, I, I take the Bible so serious, so literal, that bothers me. Because Jesus' friends didn't drive that through. Go with me to John chapter... Keep a finger here. Go with me to John chapter 20. When Jesus was resurrected... There were women that came to the tomb that saw the stone rolled away and the angel talked to them. Actually, the Lord talked to them and said, you go tell my disciples that I'm risen and I will meet them in Galilee like I said. And what happened when the women went back to the disciples to tell them that? What did the disciples say? They said, it sounded unto them like it was wives' tales. Like they were telling stories. They didn't believe them. And we've already looked at how Jesus was not happy with that. He upbraided them for their unbelief and their lack of faith that they didn't believe what he had told them. And 
the one that it kind of represents this the most is Thomas wasn't there. Jesus appeared to the whole group except Thomas was out doing something. And so when Thomas comes back, all the disciples say, you missed it, you should have been at prayer meeting last night. Jesus showed up. And what did Thomas say? He said, I won't believe. I will not believe until I see the put my finger in the print of his hands and his feet and touch the hole in his side. And we read that and we just think, well, you know, he's just doing his due diligence. We read that and we think, well, that's what I would do. And maybe we would. But I want you to think about what that verse said. He was wounded in the house of his friends. What kind of wound? Yes. The unbelief, they wouldn't trust him. They wouldn't believe what he had told them. You get here in John chapter 20, verse 27. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not... See, if you are without faith, you think you're buddy-buddy with Jesus? It's not good. He's telling Thomas he's faithless. I mean, to the point that to this day, what do we call Thomas? He kind of halfway kind of earned this... Well, we call him Doubting Thomas. Thank goodness he did believe after it was over. But he started out like this. And Jesus says, But be believing. Verse 28, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. He's saying, You're believing because it's easy. I'm here. But you should have believed before you ever saw me. Number one, because of what I told you, but then the testimony of the other disciples and the women that went down there. Jesus was hurt possibly every bit as much as when those stakes went through his body as when somebody refused to believe. He was wounded. Part of this paints the picture. This hurt. Everything that he suffered and his own boys wouldn't believe. Go back to Zechariah. Actually, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 and verse 7. There's a lot of things here in this chapter, but we're going to look at this one. It's it's easy to wrap our heads around, and we can pull it forward into our day. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, meaning he was mistreated. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. What's that describing? Jesus at his trial And do you remember where Pilate even asked him, don't you realize I have power to set you free? And Pilate was amazed that he wouldn't what? He wouldn't defend himself. He could not get over that. Pilate knows the excruciating pain that's about to come. Sir, you don't get off the hook here. And I let this crucifixion go forward. Once this starts, we can't back out of it. And he couldn't believe that Jesus was not defending himself. How many people in the history of the world 
who have been innocent, who have been threatened with death at their trial, offered no defense. Now, there's been some. There have. But there's not been many. This is strange. For a perfectly innocent person to sit there, to listen to lie after lie. The Bible says they paid witnesses off to come in and lie about him. To try to get, and they couldn't even get their stories right. They hit him. They beat him. They asked him questions. They actually demanded under the law to answer him. We adjure thee that thou answer us. That's when Jesus finally did answer them. Very short. But he said, you know, hereafter you're going to see me and I'll be sitting on the right hand of the Father. That's when they just tore their clothes and kill him. He offered no defense. That doesn't happen. Go to courtrooms, watch on TV. People that are innocent, they know they're innocent. It's human nature to defend yourself. Not our Lord. And it was predicted. Let's just say that's ten, 1 in 10,000 criminals. Forget that. How about 1 in 1,000? 1 in 1,000 would act like that and not defend themselves. Now, we've gone through 5, 6, 7 of these. Remember, there's 300 of them. But we're going to do a quick little math. And we don't have a board up here, so we even have to do it verbally. And there's a reason they never do math on the radio. It bores people and you can't can't follow it. You need visual. But I want to do something with you. If you take the probabilities that we have described and just these six and you multiply them, you end up with a probability of 1 to 10 to the 17th. That means there's a 1 with 17 zeros behind it. That all of those six things could be present in only one person's life. Now, can you get your head wrapped around that? You know, if we had a bucket here with silver dollars in it, and we took one out and put some red Sharpie marker on it and threw it in there, shook it up good, and you could reach in there, the chance of pulling that thing out, who knows what it would be, maybe one in a thousand. This one with 17 zeros behind it, that number is so big. If you filled this room with silver dollars and marked one. What do you think the chances of just reaching in randomly and picking that one out? The number that we are describing is if you take the state of Texas two feet deep. You guys just drove through Texas and not even all the way across it. It takes a little while. The entire state of Texas two feet deep, filled with silver dollars, and have one of them marked. The chances of picking that one out is 1 in 10 to the 17th. And that's six of the prophecies. Say if you double it and go to eight of them, or excuse me, 12 of them, or 14 or so, then the number of silver dollars is if you take the distance from here to the sun, make that one big sphere, a big round ball, and fill that with silver dollars. When you take all 300 of the prophecies, and if these things have a similar chance of what we're talking about, and and we were generous, 
you can take the number of seconds, excuse me, the number of atoms in the universe. The number of atoms in the universe. And you have the size that we just talked about, the sun, from here to the sun. Balls that are that big, the number being the number of atoms in the universe. And one of them, one silver dollar, is the random chance. Now, why do we talk about this? Why would we try to visually explain that? I started with a question. How sure can you be? We are more sure of who Jesus is than I am of who any one of my kids are. And I'm not saying that to put doubt in my kids. We know who they are. The point is, we're much more certain even of who Jesus is. This is why people wonder, they read the time of judgment, and they think, man, that that sounds kind of harsh. How could God tell somebody, you have to be separated me for all eternity? Because this is what God has given to mankind as evidence that he's there, that what he said is true, and what his expectations are. He went this far to make sure that we could be that sure. Peter said, we heard a voice from heaven. But there's even something more sure than that. The sure word of prophecy. You see, the Old Testament, where we've been going back to get these verses out of, that thing was translated into Greek 300 years before Jesus was born. Why does that matter? Because the whole world accepts that fact. 300 years before Jesus, the Bible, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, which means it couldn't be fudged with anymore. What we hold in our hand, even at Jesus' time, everybody understood this came from a long time ago. We didn't just print this out off the internet last week. We've had this in our hands for hundreds, if not thousands of years. How could it possibly all come true in one person's life? This is, we, we don't present Jesus to people this way, and it's, there's a reason. It's hard. You're sitting next to somebody on a plane. It's hard to do what we've done in the last 40 minutes. But this is how the Bible presents Jesus in one way. It's even more sure, Peter said. Peter saw all those things. He saw with his own eyes. And at the end, Peter writes, I kind of agree with Jesus about that. If you don't believe the prophets, the Psalms, the books of Moses, if you won't believe that, even if somebody came back from the dead, it wouldn't change your mind. That's a, that's a strange thing. That, that hits me like a ton of bricks. Because everybody has an Old Testament in their house somewhere. It's in the Bible. And in God's mind, that thing is the proof. It's the thing that God is going to judge humanity by. Did you believe that this was God's son or just some random person? This is why I think it's kind of important when you come to Bible study, when you come to church, that we actually open the Bible for a sermon. You ever go into church services and a Bible never got opened? I always walk out of there in total confusion, wondering, what what we do in there? 
Maybe we should have passed out color books or something. That's the way I feel. It's that important and nobody wants to open it to talk about it. This is why you take every chance, even though you know the story of Jonah so well, there's something more you can get out of it. It's like those verses in Zechariah that we read. There's tons of other stuff just in Zechariah all about one person. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that the certainty of your word, that the certainty of the Bible would become more relevant to us in our lives. Lord, we pray this also for our nation. We pray that the Bible would take precedent once again in our culture, and our society. Help us to be effective in that realm. We pray that the United States would have a rebirth of liberty, a rebirth of biblical knowledge. We pray, Lord, over Pastor and Tiffany, that wherever they are at this moment, that you would keep them, that you would give them health, healing, and joy. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring them back to us again. In Jesus' name, amen.